The Christian Atheist is also available on YouTube, and you will find other great content, including the literature I frequently refer to, on our Simple Gifts podcast. If you find our content helpful, consider supporting us through PayPal at RomansChapter5 at Comcast.net. Welcome to No Compromise, where faith and reason fuse in conversation. Qu'ils sont pour les pieds. Hey, John. Hello, my love. So, we're continuing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, huh? Yep. And now we're on Chapter 6. Up through Chapter 5, and the the children get into Narnia in Chapter 6 and stay in Narnia through the rest of the story together. And we said before, they were in our world, and then they were going back and forth. Right. And now they're completely in Narnia. Right. So that's how we chose to divide it. Yeah. Okay. So did you want to make any comments on last... Um, well, we just looked up the issue that Lewis keeps saying, never shut yourself into a wardrobe, how foolish that would be. And really the only... How, how many times does he say it? Yeah, I think it's five times, right? Apparently, the story is, he sent a copy of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe to his friend Owen Barfield that we talked about last time right. as a part of the Inklings. Inklings. Right? Mm-hmm. And Owen's wife, Maud, voiced a concern that children might, after reading the story, lock themselves in wardrobes. And, Suffocate. Um, that, therefore, Lewis should be careful to um, put a warning in. And so he, he heeded the advice. Mm-hmm. I was hoping there was something more yeah. philosophical behind it, but <laughs> that seems to be the answer. I guess it's kind of like in America when we were kids and it was going into a refrigerator, remember? Yes. I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Because the old refrigerator, right. by the time we were kids, actually, it yeah, didn't make true. any sense. But, yeah, but, but I, there, I do still remember. It used to be the case that yeah. refrigerators would actually lock behind you. I think weren't refrigerators like in junkyards or something, and yep. kids would get in them that way. Yep, yep, and that happens. Right. Um, and the one last thing, I guess, to say about that was Lewis oh, yeah. dedicated this to his goddaughter, Lucy, who was Owen Barfield's daughter, Lucy. Yeah, yeah. So that's worth noting as well. Yeah, that's neat. So chapter six is called Into the Forest. Okay, so the first thing that happens when the children realize that they're in another world, another land, do you remember the first thing they're concerned about? Oh, yes. (laughs) They're cold, Uh and Peter's kind of excited about exploring the place. Right. And Susan said, but it's cold. And so Susan suggests that they put on the coats in in the wardrobe. But what was it the first thing they thought of? And all of the children maybe... Edmund's excluded from this, but they they voiced a concern about the morality of taking and using coats that they haven't asked permission to do that with. It's almost like stealing. Yeah, it's like it's stealing. They felt it was stealing. So their immediate impulse is the moral impulse. Mm -hmm, These are kids that have been trained in morality from an early age Mm -hmm. and clearly have imbibed it deeply themselves. And I wonder how much the author thought that to himself as he was constructing this story and it bothered himself that you know, they're taking these coats out of the wardrobe. Yeah, you're right. (laughs) And he maybe put a little bit of himself into it. Yeah. But anyway, so Edmund um, betrays himself, Right. right? Okay, so Edmund betrays himself immediately. He has one of those characters that, and we all know these people, who Mm -hmm. want to be Mm know-it-alls, right? And so Edmund said, I say, oughtn't we to be bearing a bit more to the left? That is, if we're aiming for the lamppost? Mm -hmm. Of course, any one of us scratches our heads and thinks to ourselves, 
How stupid can you be exactly. if you want to keep your secret of not having been there before exactly. to say that? Exactly. But those types of people tend not to be able to control keep themselves. It. Yeah, keep right? it in. Yeah, exactly. they, they want so much to be the know-it-all that they have to speak their minds. Right. He had forgotten for the moment that he must pretend never to have been in the wood before. The moment the words were out of his mouth, he realized that he had given himself away. Everyone stopped. Everyone stared at him. Peter whistled. So you really were here, he said. That time Lou said she'd met you in here, and you made out she was telling lies. There was a dead silence. Well, of all the poisonous little beasts, said Peter, and shrugged his shoulders, mm -hmm. and said no more. There seemed, indeed, no more to say, and presently the four resumed their journey. Mm -hmm. But Edmund was saying to himself, I'll pay you all out for this, you pack of stuck-up, self-satisfied prigs. We are seeing Edmund mm -hmm. for what Edmund is. Right. And, right. and I also think about, just I know with myself, with people in general, and myself for sure, that the thing that's in you is going to come out in an instant if you don't have time to think about it, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, or seeing about, about Joe Biden not too yeah. long ago, right? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever comes out of a person instantly is usually what's really in the person. Exactly. Do you know what yes. I'm saying? Right. In that moment when they, they're caught off guard. The unguarded moments. Right. Yep. Then you know what's really inside of them. Yep. Okay. And you know what the truth is, too. Right. You, you can actually... <laughs> see someone for who right. they are in their most raw form. Right. It's like the one story with Sherlock Holmes. I forget what the name was. I think it was the Bohemian Scandal. He he was testing the woman to try to find out where she was hiding something. He made it look like there was a fire. And the first place she would look was the most valuable thing. So Holmes set it up so that she would reveal herself. Right. Right. Because that's exactly what we do. Right. When we're unguarded, like you said, we're going to look, say do whatever. Our true value. Exactly. You can see what the true person is. Yep. And that's always good when you're dealing. It's actually allied to the lesson I've told repeatedly mm -hmm. in the Christian atheist mm -hmm. that as Socrates said, if you want to understand what people really think, watch mm -hmm. what they do rather right. than listen to what they say. Right. Yep. Or allow them to get their guard down when yes. you're talking to them. <laughs> the more you allow them to get or their get them drunk. Yeah. <laughs> the more you allow them to get their guard down, yep. the more you'll get to observe right. who the they truth. really are. Yep. Yeah. So the children go towards Tumnus's house because that's what Lucy Lucy wants to go to to see the fawn. Right. Yeah, Lucy has developed a friendship with Tumnus. What about going to see Mr. Tumnus, said Lucy? He's the nice fawn I told you about. Everyone agreed to this, and off they went. And this is an important part. Yep. So they go to Mr. Tumnus's cave, mm -hmm. but a terrible surprise awaited Awaits them. them. The door had been wrenched off its hinges and broken to bits. Inside, the cave was dark and cold, and had the damp feel and smell of a place that had not been lived in for several days. Snow had drifted in from the doorway and was heaped on the floor mixed with something black, which turned out to be the charred sticks and ashes from the fire. Someone had apparently flung it about the room, and then stamped it out. The crockery lay smashed on the floor, and the picture of the fawn's father had been slashed into shreds with a knife. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot in this part. I think uh, this is like, this part, this section, the next couple chapters that we're going to do today, I think this is probably the most 
Yeah, I think this is like a, a, an incredibly critical moment mm -hmm. because exactly. we've got to compare this to like what happened in the previous chapter because we found there, and I think we set, set it up there pretty well, mm -hmm. the hearth fire is the heart of any traditional home. Right. And once you destroy the fire, you've essentially destroyed the home. Exactly. And so, this is something that Jadis or any totalitarian structure would seek to do. Right. And certainly what the Marxists, the leftists in our country are seeking to do, to, so, to destroy the traditional home. Exactly. And in here, there's a couple of things you want to point out. The right. fire is out. The fire it's is out. scattered around. Right. And so and, it wasn't just enough to put the fire out. And, they wanted to scatter it about too. And his father's picture. I was going to, I want you to comment on all three. Okay. So you just commented on the fire being out. Right. What's the significance of the fire being scattered around? Yeah. So they scatter the fire about to show that that unifying thing. And I said last week, I think oftentimes in, in the home, this is the mother's position. Mm -hmm. She is the burning heart of the home. Mm -hmm. She's the one who keeps everybody together, keeps everybody warm, watches for everyone's well-being takes care of all of the needs of the house, um, is attuned <laughs> to yeah. all things that we men miss. <laughs> we can be incredibly stupid <laughs> and incredibly, incredibly... Oblivious? Oblivious. Yes, that's your favorite <laughs> word for me. <laughs> oblivious. Utterly unaware of everything that's happening around us. But and you are happily oblivious. <laughs> well, I guess there's different kinds of oblivious. Yes, happily and contentedly oblivious. <laughs> um, but it is without a doubt the mm. women who are the, the, the warm fires of our home. Yeah. And, and when we destroy the sort of roles like we do in our society mm -hmm. and refuse to allow the sexes to be who they are right. and fulfill their various roles, right. that's another way of attacking the traditional home. Exactly. So putting out the fire and scattering the ashes is like Jadis saying, I will not allow these traditional structures mm -hmm. to ruin my power base. Right, um, exactly. And then, okay, and then did you want And then I was going to remember the third thing was the father's picture. Right, and the father's picture, of course, as you remember, held uh, the place of honor above the mm -hmm. hearth, right? So there's a connection between the hearth, hearth the fire, and the hearth fire, the mother, and the mother and the, and father. the father. And that's not an accident, of exactly. course. The traditional home is always built on that foundation. Right. And when you destroy the two of them, you destroy the home. And when you do that, you create the sort of chaos exactly. in which um, totalitarianism can breed. Yeah. So that was very, live. that was exciting to read that part mm -hmm. and to see all of that. Right. And to, and to get all of that out of there. Okay. So they realize that something had happened. Right. And Lucy says that they can't leave because there's a letter there. Right. There's a note. From the wolf. Right. So it says, They all went out in the daylight and crowded round Peter as he read out the following words to the note that was pinned to Tumnus's door. The former occupant of these premises, the fawn Tumnus, is under arrest and awaiting his trial on a charge of high treason against Her Imperial Majesty Jadis, Queen of Narnia, also of comforting her said majesty's enemies, harboring spies, and fraternizing with humans. Mm -hmm. Signed, Maugrim, captain of the, of the secret police. Long live the queen. And so Lucy, I think the children are kind of oblivious to, it was almost like, oh, that's too bad for him. <laughs> and Lucy had to say, do you realize that this child, this person, this human, 
That's me that they're talking about. Yes. It's my fault. With humans. And she so, takes the blame for on herself. Right. But it's not her fault at all. And that's an amazing thing because mm -hmm. Tumnus was going to betray her. Mm -hmm. She's fully aware of that. Mm -hmm. And yet she takes upon herself, because he's become her friend, the position of caretaker, that she has a responsibility to help him exactly. for the problems exactly. that he's gotten himself into. Yep. And it was it was his fault because he's the one that chose to be right. the kidnapper. Right. You know, he's the one that chose to go against his father, his mother, his right. and, and and honor and, and Narnia, Aslan. Right. Okay. All right. So that's the end of chapter six, and then we move to chapter seven, and this is when the children meet up with the beavers, Mister and Missus Beaver. So they talk through the end of chapter six about staying or leaving, and they all conclude, of course, Edmund would be in the descent. Susan mm -hmm. also seemed a little bit of a descent. Yeah. But um, Susan uh, is always kind of. Yes, yeah, Susan is always kind of the never, marginal one. Yeah, she never was on, fully on board right. with anything. And then we know in, I mean, <laughs> spoiler alert. Yeah, spoiler alert. That <laughs> <laughs> Susan ends uh, up and, not. Ends up not coming to right. the. The, the final reunion right. in the last battle, right. which doesn't exclude her totally. She's still alive yeah. in, on Earth at the time. Right. But, um, yeah. But she turned, She she's the one that turned away. Boy, and I understand that. Mm -hmm, exactly. Um, and so they think that they have to stay in Narnia, that they're morally compelled to do so, right. to try to do something for to poor Mr. Tumnus. Mr. Tumnus, right. right. And so, so now they don't know what they're going to do, where right. they're going to go, and then a bird... They get the a bird gets their attention, and points them over to Mr. Beaver, Mr. Who's, Beaver. who's hiding. Right, and he's trying to hide because the trees he can't he doesn't know who to trust. Right, so he's trying to somehow get their attention so he can get them to come back to his beaver's dam. Right, and they're not sure do they follow this beaver or not because they have no idea who's good and who's bad in this world. They know there's a witch. They know right. the witch has taken Lucy's friend who saved Lucy. Right, you know. They know there's evil in this world, so how do they know what, what's good and what's bad now Right, and, in and a this, completely new world? We noted here that there's an important element of faith mm -hmm. in, in this moment, because right. they don't know what to do. And the best right. that they can do at this point is look around them, listen, mm -hmm. try to feel with their intuition mm -hmm. what's good and what's bad. Right. And try to do the right thing. Right, you know what? And so should we trust the beaver or not trust the beaver? They take the leap of, it's kind of a leap of faith, but it's not really a leap. It kind of reminds me of the evidence, evident, and faith. <laughs> <laughs> it kind of reminds me of what the Christian atheist says. Yes, yeah, so we've been talking quite a bit about this on the Christian atheist <laughs> in recent days. Um, actually, in recent months, because mm -hmm. we had a long um, issue on atheism mm -hmm. and then on faith uh -huh. and now on the evident evidence in faith. Yep. So we've been de developing this theme for a right. long time now. Right. And so you can, you can listen to those in previous episodes of the Christian atheists. Right. And hopefully, um, they'll start making more sense as we talk about them yeah. here. Yeah. Jenny um, can help me bring my idiocy down to a level of Understand human normal human easy. understanding. <laughs> um, how many episodes did you cover of the evident evidence and faith? Yeah, that is, I think, four. Okay, I couldn't remember if it was four or five. Yeah, and then we just did Uncle Andrew mm -hmm. <laughs> and the evident evidence and faith, right? Which is right, kind of an right. example right. of mm -hmm. of what I'm talking about in that a four practical, series. yeah, practical four part application. Series. Yep. 
Okay, so now they go follow Mr. Beaver to his dam. Right. And that's where they meet Mrs. Beaver. She's preparing dinner. One of the things that you see there is this domestic scene. Right. Where she's preparing food and he's out getting the food, each doing their roles. Right. Fulfilling their roles. This is, this is I think, one of those great things. We just saw the destruction yeah. of it in Mr. Tumnus's home. Yeah. And now we find it again. Right. Because exactly. this is... This is the heart of any real society. Exactly. The witch has tried to stamp it out, mm -hmm. but um, human beings are human beings, mm -hmm. and we fall into human patterns. Exactly. And therefore, even in a totalitarian world, it's hard to really destroy stamp all out. of these things right. that are based on basic human nature. Yep. And so finally, they get their meal. You know, the meal is spread out before, and this is really my, one of my favorite parts of the book. I don't know. I always loved hearing Lewis's description of the meal. It sounded so, doesn't it sound so cozy? It, it does, yeah. So warm yeah, and cozy. They're and, cooking the fish. Yeah, and they, then he, and talks he goes about, out and catches them. Right. He even talks about the butter yep. and the cream yep. and, and everything. It just makes, oh, I yep. always thought that, I don't know, it always I don't know, just a very warm feeling inside. I, I think Lewis was himself somewhat mm -hmm. of a gourmand. Yeah. <laughs> he he but liked even, food. He did, but there's something really, really neat about this And it's part. very earthy. Right, exactly. Right? It feels and, like a country meal. Right, exactly. Yep. And it's like... Um, and it's, it's not the grocery store thing. Right. It's that they go out, they catch the fish, they bring them mm -hmm. home, they cook them in the pan, and mm -hmm. you can almost smell you it. You can smell it and taste uh, and it. And taste it when he right. describes it. I know. Right. I love that, too. <laughs> so they, they eat, and then they may, he makes a point of saying, it makes me laugh when we read it, when they're all done eating, finally, they start talking. Right. Because <laughs> you think you think when you're eating, you're talking and discussing things. No, no, they do their eating, and then they, when everything's done and cleared, then it's time to light There's the pipe and start start talking. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that's um, chapter seven, mm -hmm. and then chapter eight is what happened after dinner. And this is where they find out the background information as far back as the Beaver knows about the White Witch, mm -hmm. Aslan. Right. So he tells them about how she turns her enemies into stone in the castle. Right. And he, they also found out that find out at this point that there's nothing that they can do, that they're going to have to rely on Aslan now. Right. They're going to have to go find Aslan. Right. Or meet Aslan. Yeah, it, it's it's like a warning from Mister Beaver. Mm -hmm. I know you're concerned about Tumnus, but if yeah. you're going to, if you really want to help him, the only way to help him is to go to Aslan. Right. And so you want to read. Couldn't we have some stratagem, said Peter? I mean, couldn't we dress up as something or pretend to be old peddlers or anything and watch till the witch has gone out? Or, oh, hang it all, there must be some way. This fawn saved my sister at his own risk, Mr. Beaver. We can't just leave him to be, to be, to have that done to him. So again, the, the morality of the children is shown there and their mm -hmm. loyalty to Lucy's exactly. friend. I mean, the rest have never even met him. Exactly. Um, but, but her word is enough. Right. And they're willing to you lay, know, you know, their lives on the line before, to try to save them. Before they weren't sure about Lucy. Right. Before when, before they got into this world. Yeah. You know, this, they were like, they know Lucy is truthful. They know all of this, but they weren't sure. Now they're firm. They're like, yes, we believe you, Lucy. Right. And this sort of plays into something we've been talking about a lot over the last couple of months uh -huh. of the differences between 
how we understood children back in Lewis's day mm-hmm. and how we understand children today. Right. Can you imagine any of today's well, children was... being willing to lay their life down for anyone else other than their own little selfish interests? The comment that we got was um, our daughter was walking out the door and she was talking about the way kids are at work and yeah. how frustrated she was. And she said, she said, the kids in the kids in the Chronicles of Narnia they they seem so adult like and so and we just found <laughs> out that they were only eight ten what was it eight ten twelve and fourteen right yeah, something something like that, like that. Yeah. and they were like they acted so adult like which got us thinking <laughs> about that yep and we were like what's going on and then we kind of did a little research found right. out about the change happened in the in a, at least in America in the nineteen twenties or thirties I think it was the thirties where they introduced the teenager. Right. They started dividing kids into sort of these this time other periods. group. Yeah, this right. other group called the teenager that they could market to. Right. And it, it created a teenager and then it just got worse and worse. And then you had the sixties come and the and the teenager was always the rebel. Right. You know, and and, and but, then go ahead. But and you keep making the point, and I think it's so good that we're always excusing the behavior of children because oh, they're toddlers, right. or oh, they're just kids, yeah. or oh, they're just teenagers. Right. How about holding people responsible right. well, for what they are, whatever age right. they are? And when I was raising children, right. I would, you know, con- talk to other mothers about things and, you know, you know how mothers discuss issues and they would say, well, they're just toddlers, just don't, you know, they'll be okay, or they're just teenagers. It's, and I'd always think, well, when do I expect them to become you know, responsible? Then right. And then it's, oh, they're just young adults. Mm-hmm. Then it's, oh, they're just going through a midlife crisis. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they never grow up. There's never a time. The way that I've been stating it, and I, mm-hmm. I don't think I've said it on no compromise yet, mm-hmm. is that we have, as a culture, mm-hmm. utterly feminized our society. Yeah. And infantilized no, our population infantilized too we've turned everybody into children right and we allow them to get away with things that as a child i was never yeah. allowed to be gotten away with right um and it's you know i we were i i guess we were relics of an earlier yeah, generation's we viewpoint but think about c.s lewis and but, these, yeah and and i was saying to you that each author through time when they describe children in their stories, it's the way the children are at that time. Right. So Luz was portraying teenagers the way, right. well, preteens and teens were at his time, mm-hmm. just like Dickens portrayed teens and preteens at his time. Yeah. And then you look at the way teens and preteens are portrayed in our time. <laughs> <laughs> it's Very like something different. has changed. And I really, I personally believe it's this whole idea of creating the te- the teenager, mm-hmm. which wasn't a thing until just in the 19, 1900s, yeah, the, the 20th 1900s. century. Yeah. Right. And that's when it came into being. That's why I think really was the kind of like a downfall. All right, so you, uh, yeah, were you going to continue to yeah, read about Aslan? right there. So because I, it goes to the we, end of we, the chapter. We wandered off there a bit. But <laughs> Mr. Beaver says, it's no good, son of Adam, no good you're trying, of all people. But now that Aslan is on the move, oh, yes, tell us about Aslan, said several voices at once. For once again, that strange feeling, like the first signs of spring, like good news, had come over them. Of course, that wasn't Edmund's response. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Who and, and, is Aslan? asked Susan. Okay, yeah. Now remember, for Lewis, 
this is the first, his own, as he wrote this, was the first time he was encountering Aslan, exactly. too, as a writer. Exactly. Um, so Aslan said, Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood. But not often here, you understand. Never in my time, or my father's time. But the word has reached us that he has come back. He is in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the White Queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. She won't turn him into stone too, said Edmund. <laughs> this is when Edmund gets really upset. Lord love you, son of Adam. What a simple thing to say, answered Mr. Beaver with a great laugh. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she can do and more than I expect of her. No, no, he'll put all to rights, as it says in an old rhyme in these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. And I think of Isaiah, is it five, <laughs> where it says, you know, woe to those who take darkness for light right. and evil for good. Right. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You'll understand when you see him. That's when Edmund exited. <laughs> right. So soon after that, yeah, right. we find that Ed Edmund has yeah, exited. He didn't like to be talked to like that. Right. <laughs> offended, right? which is another of those issues, right? Taking offense right. at everything is something our culture cherishes at a level almost inconceivable, exactly. <laughs> right? It's it's like being offended is now a badge of honor. Right. Um, exactly. Okay. So that's the end of the chapter, right? Um, we Actually, we have to continue on because there's some stuff here that we okay. can't leave out. All uh, right. Go ahead. But shall we see him? Asked Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's what I brought you here for. I'm to lead you to where you shall meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is, is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And this is one of my favorite yeah. moments in all <laughs> exactly. of the Chronicles of Narnia. And Narnia. this is, I think, the most famous moments. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. <laughs> Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And I want to note that I did not cry at all when I said that. <laughs> I was watching. I was checking to see if you were going to cry. Uh, this is one of our one of our pet peeves, mm -hmm. um, the gentle Jesus, meek and mild right. thing. Right. It's like, no, what Jesus are you reading about? Yes, exactly. <laughs> Jesus was a man right. and he was a man's man right. and he was not nice. Right. He was, right. he was kind and he was ferocious. Right. It's, it's exactly as Mr. Beaver says, he's good. Mm -hmm. Is he safe? Mm -hmm. No. Don't exactly. look for safe from Jesus. Right. 
the woman at the well. Right. He told her straight out. <laughs> I know. You've had four husbands, and the one you're living with now is not your he, husband. He told her. <laughs> no, I shouldn't say told her straight. He told her the truth. Right. That's what that. Yeah, and the truth is not and safe. And I was going to say, and the truth is not kind. Mm-hmm. And that's what the issue is today. Kindness. I'm longing to see him, said Peter, even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. Mm-hmm. And this is actually also a moment, I think, in the evident evidence and faith, because when you encounter God, and I think that's the only way, you can't argue for God's existence. Right. You have to encounter God. That's right. the only way to do it. Right. There, There is no making an argument and finding God that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not saying the arguments for gods are useless. They, they may have some validity and some value. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're never going to convince anyone rationally right. to believe in God. Right. Exactly. They have to encounter him. Mm-hmm. And you, mixed in that encounter has to be both. Mm-hmm. It has to be the notion of him being good and him being terrifying. Exactly. Because both are aspects of who he really is. Right. And you can't encounter God in a lie. Mm-hmm. You have to face the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's right, son of Adam, said Mr. Beaver, bringing his paw down on the table with a crash that made all the cups and saucers rattle. And so you shall. Word has been sent that you are to meet him tomorrow if you can at the stone table. And that's how it ends. Mm-hmm. When Adam's flesh and Adam's bones sits at Caraparavel in throne, the evil time will be over. And done. Okay, so the chapter ends, and and now the next chapter. I think, well, we both think that it's a it's a important chapter, just as much as the um, Tumnus's cave, right? The, and the, the chapter state. really ends with noting that Edmund's gone, right? Right, and discussing, right. oh no, when did he leave? What did he yeah, hear? That's right. And yeah. and Mister Beaver saying, oh, children, I hate to say it, but I saw in his eyes. The look of one who has eaten of the queen's food. Right. right? Exactly. Um, and that that sense, <laughs> we saw someone testifying in Congress yeah. just this with the, two weeks ago or so. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And we said, look at her eyes. Yeah. She has like There's possessed well, eyes. We said, I said, she looks like somebody when they're blind and they can't see. Yes. And they're completely. She the was, only thing that they're able to see is the, the vision in their head. Right. Exactly. Yep. It was, it was real. it was weird. Again, evident evidence and faith. Mm-hmm. They have shut themselves off from reality. Right. They see only their, their rationalized version of it. Exactly. And this wokeness crap that we're dealing with now is exactly that. Mm-hmm. And how much of it is real demon possession exactly. and how much of it is ideological possession mm-hmm. or what the difference between those two is, I don't know. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay, I'm sorry. I interrupted you about Edmund the next chapter being important because Edmund goes to the witch and that journey is like, it, it's kind of representative of the journey of someone who's going away from traditional values, away from God, mm-hmm. away from what, right. What's right. Right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's actually really good for that. Um, so it's kind of an important, an, another important one, like sort of like Tumnus's, Tumnus's state of Tumnus's cave. Right. All right. So Edmund is on his way, and he's and he's feeling cold. He's feeling wet. He's feeling hungry. And what's he hungry for? Yeah, he's hungry. He, even though he, he had, just ate, he just had a normal a normal meal, a really he had a traditional good meal that both really of us good. like our mouths yeah. water when we read it. 
Yeah. And Edmund couldn't appreciate it. Right. It was like Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. because, <laughs> because because he's had... The enchanted food? Oh, yeah. Is the it enchanted the enchanted food? food? Yeah. He... Edmund can't enjoy the good food because he's tasted enchanted food. Right. And this is much like what we talked about with Diggory and the witch when she took the apple and forever after would loathe the smell right. of them. Right. Um, and the the taste of illicit fruit... And this is actually documented truth. Right. When when you do things in the wrong way, all of the the joy from them slowly fades away. Exactly. Um, exactly. You know, so diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns. Exactly. Yeah. You know. So he's miserable, and he's he's looking around, and he starts planning for a better world. He, how he would make the world a better place. Yeah. One of the one of Edmund's <laughs> great comforts. As he heads to the witch mm -hmm. and endures his misery through the cold, because he left his jacket behind, and he's wet, and he's miserable. But one of the things that comforts him as he goes along is his plans for how he's going to correct the world. Right. <laughs> and this is the great Marxist vision. Right. right? Better roads. Right. We're going to create better he's roads. He's going to have better Narnia, roads, right? right? And, and he plans for how his palace is going to look. Right. And, and how... Right. So it's always the utopia at the end of things right. that um, the Marxists hold on to, that the atheists hold on to. Right. Um, I think of Sam Harris in the discussion mm -hmm. with Jordan Peterson. And he talks about getting rid of all of these superstitions mm -hmm. um, of faith that we've dealt with and how the world will be better then. Right. <laughs> and, uh, I hate to say, I don't think it's going to go that way. Um, oh, every time it's been tried, it hasn't worked. Yeah, every time it has been tried, it hasn't worked so well. Um, and he's also planning his revenge, too. And Right. And that's another thing that tends to... Oh, and we're, we're reading... A book right now by Cheslov Milos. And one of the things he says in there mm -hmm. is that hatred is one of the underlying structures of any totalitarian society right. like the Marxists. Right. And that the what they have to do to institute it, to bring it to be, is to stoke the hatred, stoke the resentment mm -hmm. um, in the population. And you see that happening yep. all over the place. And, and that's mm -hmm. that's the structure on which the society is built. And right. certainly Edmund is manifesting that. He talks about how he's going to pay Peter out mm -hmm. and, and the rest of them too. And what have they done to him? Right. You know, it's right. been Edmund all along who's been the aggressor. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, and, and the violator. Exactly. Um, so as he's planning his revenge, that's when the weather actually clears up. Yes. It starts to, it, the snow actually stops, it stops snowing. Yep. And it's almost as if, out. right, and lights his path. And he can see. Right. And that is and sort I, of like a, he's committed now. When I, I, when we read this this time, I stopped and I said to you, that's one of the moments of clarity mm -hmm. that I had that was very similar to that when I became an atheist. Mm -hmm. It's like I've turned aside from all of these superstitions that I felt were superstitions at the time. And I had a moment of clarity and I said, wow, now I'm free to do what I like, what I want, what I think is mm -hmm. the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And those, for Christians, if you don't recognize yeah. that there is clarity yep. in atheism, you're missing the boat because mm -hmm. there is. There is great intellectual clarity and a sense of freedom mm -hmm. that comes with it. 
It's like I'm free from all of those obligations right. that that are put upon me. You don't recognize the chains that you are now forging in doing this. As right. he's heading toward the queen, he feels free. Right. Um, and he right. feels committed, right? This is the moment when he says, I'm done. I'm I finally cut the cords and I'm I'm committed to following this pathway where it takes me. Mm-hmm. And there's great clarity, excitement even yeah. in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, I am. So the way is still difficult for him though. Yep. Even though even though he's free now. Yep. And he continues to blame Peter. That was his biggest thing is he keeps yes. blaming Peter. Um, and now at this point he gets to the Queen's castle. It's too late for him to turn back. Yep. And when he gets to the castle, what does he find? Does he find life? One of the first things that he finds in he the knows, Queen's he... castle, this this place well, where supposedly the world is going to be renewed for him. Right. Is stillness. Is death. And quietness. Yes. And... Absolute stillness. Right. Absolute quietness. Right. Although nothing. everything is pretty well lit with the moon, um, mm-hmm. but there is like a deathly silence all around yeah. him. And the moon is a beautiful light, but it's not the it's same. It's not the sun. Yeah, it's not the same light. Yes. <laughs> it's nice to see at nighttime, but it's, it's not. It's kind of interesting, you too, that scientifically the sun mm-hmm. is a reflected light mm-hmm. because there is no light to evil. The moon is a reflected right. light. Right. The, the moon. Sorry. What did yeah, I say? You said the sun okay, is. Okay. Re- yeah, I said the sun is reflected. <laughs> the moon is a reflected light. There is no light to evil. Mm-hmm. Any light that you find in it is always reflected light. Yeah. Okay. Would you say this is a wood between the world moment? As Edmund walks up into the courtyard and steps through, mm-hmm. he's kind of standing in the gate, and the gate is, of course, a place between two places, right? right. The interior and the exterior. And so, in a way, this is another one of those wood between the worlds moments mm-hmm. that we see. And the gate is wide open. And the gate is wide open, <laughs> yes. And and he looks in and he sees a lion right there. Crouching. Crouching. As if it's going to pounce. Right. And he's terrified. Right. He thinks it's, the lion is a real lion. Right. And he's afraid he's, he's going to, to lose his he's, life here. He, he's afraid it's going to notice him. Right. But what's it? It's pouncing because it's about to pounce on what he sees as a dwarf. Right. So he chooses to. He says to himself, "Slink, slink um, down and." Right. He says to himself, "I'll wait until the lion pounces, and then that'll be my moment to run into the courtyard and run to the queen." Right. And so in, we see here cowardice. Right, and him sacrificing another for himself. Right. Right. Sacrificing another in an in an evil way, right, to get myself out of something, almost like Aslan sacrificed himself for Edmund. Edmund in the opposite direction, but yes. yeah, for love. Yeah, and, and, and also you see that I mean that's a great contrast. I, I yeah. in many ways that's the contrast mm-hmm. to draw. But right. there's also the contrast between Edmund and his view of this dwarf, mm-hmm. and how Lucy, Peter, and Susan deal with Mr. Tumnus. Right. Right. They're willing right. to sacrifice themselves exactly. for Mr. Tumnus. Mm-hmm. Um, and Edmund thinks only of Edmund, just like Uncle Andrew. Right. But then he discovers, Edmund discovers that the, the lion, the dwarf, everything, they're all stone. Mm-hmm. And there's snow piling up on them. Right. Right. And then he feels silly. He First he feels silly that it was just, it was just, a stone lion. Just a stone lion. Then he has relief. Right. You know, or maybe relief and then silly. And then um, he feels freedom. Right. 
a sense of freedom. And right. then, um, and that sense of freedom is really important. Right. Right. Because the fear of God now right. has been reduced to stone. Right. You know? So, so the lion, because, because at this point he, yeah, I'm sorry. Were you going to say the Aslan? He yeah. it reminds him, or the lion reminds him of Aslan. Right. Is that what you were about yep. to say? Yeah. Because at this point he had heard the stories of Aslan. He thought, Ooh, this is Aslan right. turned he to said, stone. Oh, see, she, the witch has already turned that silly right. Aslan into stone. Right. And this is very much the view, and I think Lewis is actively portraying it here, of many in the Western world, in Lewis's time, in our own time, and even well before that, that the structures of Christianity, the structures of faith, have been relegated to the past, mm-hmm. have been turned to stone, have no real life in them. And that it's time we move past them, exactly, um, and and stop thinking them as vibrant and real and anchored in life, right? And so this is representing that notion that Christianity is is now frozen and useless, right? It's a frozen Christianity. Yeah. So at this point, Edmund gets his courage up. Yeah, what does courage. he use? What does he? <laughs> what does he use? He uses a pencil, a stub of a pencil. He oh, had that in his he pocket. had in his pocket. Okay. And, and he jeers at Aslan. Mm-hmm. He draws, <laughs> and you. <laughs> it just reminds me of my of my childhood mm-hmm. when we used to do that on magazines and right. stuff all the time. I guess kids don't get that that joy today anymore. Because we don't really <laughs> have no magazines catalogs. like that anymore. Yeah, but we used to do that as kids on magazines all the time. Draw on, glasses on them and mustaches. In the Sears um, catalog. Right. <laughs> in the Sears catalog. <laughs> the old one. Not the new one. The old one. <laughs> um, and so. But um, yeah, he, um, those who, who jeer it, those who, I mean, this, this stone lion is almost like a representative of Aslan. Right. And just like, those who are in the the profession of pastor, mm-hmm. whatever, they're representatives of God. Mm-hmm. We jeer at them and and you know, yeah. and 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 say all sorts and, of yeah. And co- our culture has made fun of uh-huh. Christianity and Christians mm-hmm. for so long. They it, put it's like the mustache. Op- there's always open sport right. on Christians They've, these days. They put the mustache on, right? You know. Yep, and make fun. And I actually have no problem with that. Right. There's most but, Christians actually find great joy mm-hmm. in watching some of it. Although there's some some offensive stuff too, yeah. like putting the cross in the in the urine. urine right. um, what happened to Edmund after he did it? The relief which Edmund felt was so great that in spite of the cold, he suddenly got warm all over, right down to his toes. <laughs> that's a good. Uh-huh, that's a good thing. Exactly. He founds out that that the lion is frozen, so he mm-hmm. feels so good right down mm-hmm. to his toes. And I felt moments like that as an atheist mm-hmm. it's like i don't have to follow these right. all of these structures and these right. things i can ignore all of them because it's not true and at the same time there came into his head what seemed a perfectly lovely idea probably he thought this is the great lion aslan that they were all talking about she's caught him already and turned him into stone so that's the end of all their fine ideas about him Pooh, who's afraid of aslan and he stood there gloating over the stone lion and presently he did something very silly and childish. He took a stump of lead pencil out of his pocket and scribbled a mustache on the lion's upper lip and then a pair of spectacles on its eyes. Then he said, Yah, silly old Aslan, how do you like being stone? You thought yourself mighty fine, didn't you? But in spite of the scribbles on it, the face of the great stone beast still looked so terrible and sad and noble, staring up in the moonlight, that Edmund didn't really get any fun out of jeering at it. 
he turned away and began to cross the courtyard. <laughs> and I, <laughs> yeah. I love that moment. Yeah, because me it's too. Like, I like that too. Wait a second. You had best look carefully mm -hmm. at this Christianity that you yeah. are jeering at right. and making fun of. Right. Which is exactly what happened to Christ before he went to the cross. Exactly. Um, yeah. Because the noble ideas that are in it, the philosophy and structure of the Western world that are built upon it is not something to jeer at. It's mm -hmm. something to celebrate. Mm -hmm. And I don't care if you're secular, if, if, if non-religious or whatever. That is a noble and amazing story to understand. Mm -hmm. And to see it for the truth that it is, is to fall down and worship, I think. Right. So at this point, he does get to speak with the witch. You know, she's like, why didn't you bring your brothers? Right, so she's your brother and furious and, with him. Yeah. And not the kind person that right. she seemed at the end of their last meeting. Right. Right, which is exactly and, what we expect. Right, and then she demands that um, he brings them, and and then he mentions Aslan. And, and then, she blows up. Right. By the end of this chapter, she decides to take her sledge, take Edmund, Go to the stone table, stone table and catch them before they get there. And send the wool, her wolves, right. to the beaver's dam. Right. And that's... To kill the other children. Right. So she covers all her bases. Right. And I guess she decides not to kill Edmund because at this point he's more valuable as a bargaining piece. Right. Exactly. So now we get to chapter 10 and we start to see the spell is beginning to break, her winter spell. Right. And... This is another one of my favorite moments. Yeah, Lewis takes us back to the Beaver's Dam. There we're back to domesticity. Domesticity, yes, <laughs> the traditional home yep. again. And we see we see the sex roles mm -hmm. dividing again. Exactly. And we see Mrs. Beaver with her practicality making everything in such a way or putting to get things together in such a way as to make everyone comfortable as possible mm -hmm. on the difficult trip to the right. stone table. Right. So she packs food. She's smart mm -hmm. <laughs> about this. You do that all the time. Right. When we go away, you're so good at getting everything ready and, yeah. and packed. And, and I think about, <laughs> I mean, all through my life, even before I was a Christian, we talked about this mm -hmm. recently, about I never wanted to be a man or to do a job of a man. I have no <laughs> desire to do the man's job. Yeah. I enjoy doing the woman's job, yeah. it, what the stereotype woman's right. job is. It just brings me joy and happiness. Mm -hmm. Just like you doing your job brings you joy and happiness. So it's like, just let me be a woman. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And you, you keep saying Elizabeth Elliot was one. Right. Of Elizabeth Elliot is the yeah. one. Right. Yeah. She was my one of my heroes yeah. early on in my Christian life. Yeah. So, yeah, I love everybody's trying to rush Mrs. Beaver, and yeah. Mrs. Beaver re refuses to be rushed. Right. She has reasoned it out. She's the Time Lord. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> we often call Jenny our Time Lord because. <laughs> She always knows exactly when to leave to get to where we're going. She has it all or mapped how long out. It's going to take. And she knows exactly, yeah, everything that's up, coming up and how to organize them in the right order. Um, so, yeah. So I see, I see um, Jenny so much in Mrs. Beaver here. But then you are the one that loosens, loosens things up a little bit. <laughs> With what? You loosen you loosen up all the rigidness. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> we got to do things that you know. We got to get things done this way, but you take us on the scenic route uh. <laughs> by accident, obliviously take us on the scenic. Route. You mean when I turn right when we're supposed to go left? <laughs> <laughs> and it's like you know what? This isn't so bad. This was kind of enjoyable. <laughs> 
<laughs> I've seen something I haven't seen. <laughs> yeah, but you're nice enough to actually interpret it that way instead of calling me the idiot that I am. <laughs> you are not an idiot in any way. Okay, so at the Beaver's Dam, they prepare to go yep. um, to Aslan's Table. At the castle, they prepare to go to, to Aslan's Table, too. Right. So it's a matter of who's going to get there who's first. Who's going to get there first. Right. <laughs> and the witch she would have hopes... won, except that the spell begins to break. Right. And her sledge gets stuck. And her sledge gets stuck, gets stuck yes. <laughs> I, was... I was just going to say that they, the children and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver travel until they can travel no farther. Right. I was and then going they stop to say the exact same thing, and, and they go to sleep. rest at a sleeping spot. You know, right. And apparently hand around a and bottle was... of of liquor. Right. And, and the thing is, Mrs. <laughs> Beaver, yeah, Mrs. Beaver had everything she needed in yep. order for them to have a, as the most comfortable sleep possible. Right. Which is what, yes. yeah, which is what I always felt my job was. Yep. And I enjoyed it. Yep. And you're good at it. Okay. They awaken to a noise and they're, they're frightened because they wonder if it's the witch. And then they find out it is. Father Christmas. Right. Because the, one of the big, points that they make from Tumnus through through the beavers right. is that the white witch for the last hundred years has made it always winter and never Christmas. Right. So she's right. kept Father Christmas out and Father Christmas comes back. And that's one of the greatest signs that the witch's power is fading. Right. And Father Christmas gives the beavers and the children gifts. But it's not the kind of gifts that we're accustomed to giving to our children. <laughs> yes. This is another one of those great moments that I loved as a kid. Yeah. Um, Come on, cried Mr. Beaver, who was almost dancing with delight. Come and see. This is a nasty knock for the witch. It looks as if her power is already crumbling. What do you mean, Mr. Beaver, panted Peter, as they all scrambled up the steep bank of the valley together. Didn't I tell you, answered Mr. Beaver, that she'd made it always winter and never Christmas? Didn't I tell you? Well, just come and see. And then they were at the top and did see. It was a sledge, and it was reindeer with bells on their harness. But they were far bigger than the witch's reindeer, and they were not white, but brown. And on the sledge sat a person whom everyone knew the moment they set eyes on him. He was a huge man. That's interesting, because we think of him as a small man mm -hmm. because of the... Who's that? Clement something. What's the guy that wrote Twas the Night Before Christmas? Oh, I forget what his name is. He was a huge man in a bright red robe, bright as hollyberries, with a hood that had fur inside it, and a great white beard that fell like a foamy waterfall over his chest. Some of the pictures of Father Christmas in our world make him look only funny and jolly. But now that the children actually stood looking at him, they didn't find it quite like that. He was so big, and so glad, and so real, that they all became quite still. They felt very glad, but also solemn. Mm. What do you think? I, I think that's a picture of mm -hmm. standing before the the holy and the real and the um, mm -hmm. the august presence of of the traditional world. Yep. And the the laws that God has put in place. Right. Um, it's not just all jolliness and happiness. It's a matter mm -hmm. of recognizing there's something bigger than us. Right. That um, that we're dealing with. I've come at last," said he. She has kept me out for a long time, but I have got in at last. Aslan is on the move. The witch's magic is weakening. And Lucy felt running through her that deep shiver of gladness, which you only get if you are being solemn and still. And that's also something that we've lost. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. um, I know with your kids, you managed to actually keep them, but it seems like they don't even try anymore to keep kids solemn and still yeah, ever. Exactly. It's like, oh, they're just kids. Let them run. Let them. 
and uh, okay, there's a, there's a place for that, mm-hmm. but there's nothing wrong with forcing kids into a disciplined stance before things that are solemn right. and, and serious. Right. And now said Father Christmas for your presence. There is a new and better sewing machine for you, Mrs. Beaver. She was worried about her sewing machine, afraid the witch was going was to take steal it and mess it. with it. I will drop it in your house as I pass. As for you, Mr. Beaver, when you get home, you will find your dam finished and mended, and all the leaks stopped, and the new sluice gates fitted. Peter, which, which Adam's is, son, John, said Father Christmas. Which is kind of funny that when she thinks of this witch who's huge evil, <laughs> yeah. She thinks of her as somebody who's going to mess with her sewing, sewing machine. machine. <laughs> Which shows you that, I mean, later on we talk about the little people. Yep. You know, the little mm-hmm. people do their thing. Yeah. The common people, they go around, they do their thing. and But they're the ones that are the ones that we that we need to save our, right. our culture. They're the people that we've largely lost in our society almost completely because everyone is so wealthy that yeah. they don't even appreciate the things that they have. Mm-hmm. It's like Mrs. Beaver loves her sewing machine mm-hmm. and she cherishes it right. because she doesn't really have much else. Right. It's, it's like one of the few things that I, I think about when I read Little House on the Prairie series, when they got something for Christmas, like a little doll. Mm-hmm. It was yeah. like everything to them. <laughs> and then I see kids opening presents on Christmas today and throwing one thing aside, not in the least bit interested not in it, probably knowing, never pick it up again. Not even knowing if they took it home with them. Exactly. And not caring because <laughs> right? they have so many things Forgetting at home about it. that exactly. the extra things they got there mean nothing to them. But Mrs. Beaver, for some reason, what comes to mind is Diggory and Polly and the magician's nephew, their aunt, the one who's taking care of the mother. Yes. After Jadis, after she meets Jadis, the first thing she's like, you need to, you know, (laughs) yeah, and you need to go, you know, like she, she deals with her as if she's just another woman. Yep. yep. You know what I mean? Exactly. A bad woman. And then she does the same. (laughs) Right. And after she goes, she gets thrown across the room. She goes right back to caring for his mother. Right. Yeah, and Mrs. Beaver's like, the queen couldn't, of course, care less no, about the stupid snowing no machine, way. but that's all she can think about. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think, I, I hope I'm not being disrespectful here, but I think of your mom, yes, too, like that. that's exactly <laughs> what would happen. That's exactly how she would respond. <laughs> I don't want Mrs. Clinton playing going, with my sewing machine or something. That's like. exactly what I would, that's exactly what I pictured. <laughs> uh, that's really funny. Peter, Adam's son, said Father Christmas. Here, sir, said Peter. These are your presents, was the answer. And they are tools, not toys. The time to (laughs) use them is perhaps near at hand. Bear them well. With these words, he handed to Peter a shield and a sword. Mm -hmm. And he's expecting Peter to be a man, Mm -hmm. to act like a man, and to take on the responsibilities of a man. Of manhood. I remember reading this as a child mm-hmm. and being absolutely blown away by that. Mm-hmm. And by the later, when he's forced to do the cleaning of the sword thing. Yep. Um, as a kid, it was like, wow. Yeah. And he's so old and so mature that he's only, what, <laughs> he's what 14, 13 or 14? 14, yeah. <laughs> right. And, and But Aslan treats him, uh, right. this is Father Christmas here, but Aslan does a little later, right. too. And this is one of those things that we've been talking about all through this. Children are expected to be responsible. Right. And we don't excuse them here as just being children. Right. We don't expect them one day to switch. Right. Day by day, week by week, month by month. 
you're constantly expecting a little right. bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more right. so that they can become adults. Yeah. <laughs> the childhood that I grew up in, mm -hmm. my dad did that for me. And exactly. obviously it was one of the greatest gifts ever. Right. And my, my brothers would say the same, I think. Right. That, um, right. The, that dad expecting us to, to be responsible, to work. Right. And carry our load. With cheerfulness. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, I guess he, in, in one way, didn't care if it was cheerful or not. Right. He just expected you to do what you were told. Yeah, just as long as there was no complaining. <laughs> yeah, as long as there was no complaining. You don't yeah, do all either. things without murmurings and disputings. <laughs> yes. Um, so, yeah, the, the way we treat children and the way we should be treating children is mm -hmm. quite a bit different, right. I think, now. Right. Um, Susan, Eve's daughter, said Father Christmas, these are for you. And he handed her a bow and a quiver full of arrows and a little ivory horn. And then. We both noted this. He says it to both Lucy and Susan. You must use the bow only in great need, he said, for I do not mean you to fight in the battle. Mm -hmm. It does not easily miss. And when you put this horn to your lips and blow it, then wherever you are, I think help of some kind will come to you. Last of all, he said, Lucy, Eve's daughter. And Lucy came forward. He gave her a little bottle of what looked like glass, but people said afterwards that it was made of diamond and a small dagger. In this bottle, he said, there is a cordial made of the juice of one of the fire flowers that grow in the mountains of the sun. If you or any of your friends is hurt, a few drops of this will restore them. And the dagger is to defend yourself at great need, for you also are not to be in battle. So before we get to the next thing, mm -hmm. Lucy is given the healing. Mm -hmm. And that's another of the traditional roles for women. Mm -hmm. Um, and role. both Lucy and Susan, they're not meant they're to be told, in battle. Right. And Lucy asks the question, which all of feminism would have screamed Scream. at the moment. Right. What do you mean we can't be in battle? Sorry, I'm getting in trouble, folks, for that one. <laughs> <laughs> Why, sir, said Lucy. I think, I don't know, but I think I could be brave enough. Mm -hmm. That's not the issue. Right. right. Women are brave enough. Women are, in many ways, superior to men in a lot of ways. <laughs> um, but, but bravery but, isn't the point. Right. And, and that's what he says. Right. And they're women. That's not the point, he said. Right. But battles are ugly when mm. women fight. Yeah. And that's all he says. Mm -hmm. But that's not a small point. Exactly. And it's something, it's, it's a wisdom of the ages exactly. that we have put behind us mm -hmm. in the present world. And it has not made the world better. Right. Okay. So that chapter ends. Um, Peter had just drawn his sword out of its sheath and was showing it to Mr. Beaver. He's <laughs> just like, guys, right? we're going to check out all the, all the new tools. And uh, when Mrs. Beaver said, now then, now then, don't stand there till the tea's got cold. Just like men. Come and help to carry the tray down and we'll have breakfast. What a mercy I thought of bringing the bread knife. <laughs> so, yes. As I said some time ago, I said, thank God for strict mothers yes. when we were doing the, the magician's nephew. The magician's nephew, nephew when Diggory, um, yes. yeah, when she so trained Diggory. Thank, thank God for, for thoughtful mothers who yeah. understand the needs. And, well, it's um, not just the needs. It's also the comfort. For, right. for real, it's the comfort, too. Yep, for sure. You know? um, real quick, you said about um, Twas the Night Before Christmas. Mm -hmm. That was Clement Clark Moore. Clement Clark Moore. Right, and you did a recitation of the Twas the Night Before Christmas. <laughs> so if you go on the Christian Atheist, look through the videos right. on YouTube, 
you hear the Christian atheist doing <laughs> Twas the Night Before Twas Christmas. The night before Christmas. Yeah, for... Shaped our view of Father Christmas for, mm-hmm. for a long time. Exactly. Americans. Yep. Okay, so we go to chapter 11. You Do you want to set up what the scene is? Chapter 11, Aslan is nearer. Edmund is traveling with the witch. Right. So Edmund is, is having not. a miserable time. <laughs> he's having right. He's having a change of heart. Yeah. Slowly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Not quite yet, yeah, I don't but know. Yeah, he's, it comes. He's suffering. He's suffering, mm-hmm. and he's recognizing that the witch was not all that he right. thought she would be. Exactly. Which is another one of the things that I recognized with mm-hmm. atheism. Right. He did. <laughs> and, and all Marxists end up realizing he's when they great. get what they want. And I think here of Reagan, the Reagan speech that we've done mm-hmm. um, the, on the, the Christian atheist. on the Christian on, on YouTube on and on the podcast. It's it's on simple simple gifts, gifts too, right? Exactly the um, simple gifts podcast and the YouTube the Christian atheist. Yeah, the and, Berlin and wall Reagan speech. says at the end of his tear down this wall speech mm-hmm. about those who are protesting that <laughs> if they got what the they... government that they were apparently seeking. No one would be able to do what they're doing ever again. Right. And that's exactly the point. Right. Um, sometimes when you get what you want, mm-hmm. you find out that what you want was not only wrong, but evil and bad, not just for you, but, but for, for other, else. others. And that's what happens with Edmund. With Edmund. He comes and he to... also realizes he's not getting what he wanted. He wanted Turkish delight and she yes. gave him bread and water, bread and, water. <laughs> <laughs> and then demanded that he eat it as well. Right, exactly. And he realizes at this point, I mean, he had put his hope and his faith. Right. In, hope um, and faith, and that's important. Yep. Yeah, and he had put it in, in all of this, and now it's starting to crumble, and he realizes he betrayed his siblings. Yep. He realizes he's still cold and miserable, and he realizes that she lied to him. Yep. Right. Right. And that perhaps he's starting to recognize that he lied to himself. Right. And then the big moment comes when he come when they when the witch encounters the the, the creatures that had yes. just had a visit from Father Christmas. Father Christmas had prepared them a table with right. all the fixings and they were enjoying their their meal and she comes pulling up. Right. And then at last the witch said, What have we here? Stop! And they did. How Edmund hoped she was going to say something about breakfast, but she had stopped for quite a different reason. A little way off at the foot of a tree sat a merry party, a squirrel and his wife with their children and two satyrs and a dwarf and an old dog fox, all on stools round a table. Edmund couldn't quite see what they were eating, but it smelled lovely and there seemed to be decorations of holly, and he wasn't at all sure that he didn't see something like a plum pudding. At the very moment when the sledge stopped, "'What is the meaning of this?' asked the witch queen. Nobody answered. "'Speak, vermin!' she said again. "'Or do you want my dwarf to find you a tongue with his whip? "'What is the meaning of all this gluttony, this waste, this self-indulgence? "'Where did you get all these things?' (laughs) "'All of the goodness.'" Mm Satan hates the goodness that and, God gives and us. And it's all called waste. Yes, waste and gluttony. Funny. And it's not. Mm-hmm. Right? Weird Those views. who call evil good and good evil. Yes. Um, these were good things. And God means us to enjoy exactly. all the good of the world. Exactly. He just tells us there's a right way to do it right. and a wrong and way. Basically, in moderation. Right. <laughs> in moderation. 
And in other things, there are very strict rules, like with sex, within marriage. And if you do it within those strictures, then everything is is as it should be. I'd like to say it's always good from that point on, but I guess we have other ways of ruining things too, even when we do (laughs) things right sometimes, we human beings. There's always Uh, sin mixed in with everything. Yeah. So it's a shame how we've mm-hmm. how we've ruined that. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, for some of us, it just keeps getting better and better. Oh, John, <laughs> I love your smile. <laughs> Please, Your Majesty," said the fox. "We were given them, and if I might make so bold as to drink Your Majesty's very good health, who gave them to you?" said the witch. "Father Christmas," stammered the fox. "What?" roared the witch, springing from the sledge and taking a few strides nearer to the terrified animals. He has not been here. He cannot have been here. How dare you? But no, say you have been lying and you shall even now be forgiven. So that hatred of all that is good, she cannot stand that anyone would be enjoying anything Mm -hmm. because she enjoys nothing. And that spitefulness, mm-hmm. that resentment. It's kind of the spirit of the age right now. It is the spirit of the age right now. And it is the spirit of yeah. the, I'm not going to say what I usually do with the, the left. I'm going yeah. to say it is the spirit of the Hegelian. I was going to say, you always say Hegelian. Yes. <laughs> so you are going to say what you always say. <laughs> it is the sp- spirit of the Hegelian totalitarian spirit mm-hmm. that has overtaken right. our culture. Right. And we so seldom recognize the resentment that underlies so mm-hmm. much of what is done in our world. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought we were going to get a, pervasive. I thought we were going to get through this without one Mentioning mention Hegel? of Hegel. <laughs> Never. <laughs> well, at least we can hashtag him now, now that we mentioned him. <laughs> at that moment, one of the young squirrels lost its head completely. He has, he has, he has, it squeaked, beating its little spoon on the table. This is another of those moments that is meant to be as poignant yeah. as when he lies okay. about having been to, to Narnia oh. with her. It's a betrayal. Mm-hmm. But this is the betrayal back to its original source. Right. This is the witch herself doing it. Right. And when Edmund sees it, mm-hmm. this is a final turning point for Edmund. Exactly. Edmund saw the witch bite her lips so that a drop of blood appeared on her white cheek. Then she raised her wand. Oh, don't, don't, please don't, shouted Edmund. <laughs> really love that moment when Uh-oh. Edmund rises up and sees <laughs> and recognizes what she is. You need a tissue? No, I'm okay. <laughs> But even while he was shouting, she had waved her hand, and instantly where the merry party had been, there were only statues of creatures seated round a stone table. I wonder the stone table is reminiscent of Mm -hmm. the greater stone table, because here we have another sacrifice, on which there were stone plates and a stone plum pudding. Mm -hmm. As for you, said the witch, giving Edmund a stunning blow (laughs) on the face as she remounted the sledge. Mm -hmm. Let that teach you to ask favor for spies Mm -hmm. and traitors. Drive on. Yeah, this is the first moment in the book since we were introduced to Edmund that he feels sorry for somebody other than himself. himself, Yeah, And they say that he, go ahead, 
were you going to read the rest? Of oh, you might as well just read that yep, section. He looks it seems back. so pitiful. Okay. Yeah. And Edmund, for the first time in this story, felt sorry for someone right, besides <laughs> himself. It seems so pitiful to think of those little stone figures sitting there all the silent days and all the dark nights, year after year, till the moss grew on them, and at last even their faces crumbled away. Right. And this is what the witch does. She brings she brings death mm -hmm. and destruction and unhappiness. Right. And if you think of it in light of, say, like the atheist, there has to be a moment when they look at something innocent, harmless, and all, you know, a lot of times they'll say, why would God, if there's a God, why would he be so cruel to do yes. this or that? There has to be a moment when they, when they realize that that, that the universe they, is utterly indifferent? Yeah, yeah. Like when they come to a point where they realize that. Because if you don't believe in God... Then then where does yeah, value come from? Right. This is one yeah. of my fundamental things in <laughs> exactly. evidence, evidence and faith. Exactly. Because if you're not going to believe in the ultimate good, right. then you've got a problem. Mm -hmm. Because where does all of the good in the universe come from? Because human beings cannot exist without valuing things. Mm -hmm. Value comes with consciousness. And if you believe in the good of the universe, as it says in Genesis, right? God saw, and it's an interesting phrasing, God mm -hmm. saw that all that he had created was good. good. It doesn't say God created it good. Right. It said that he recognized the good of what right. he created. Right. And that's, that's evident. It is evident to God that the world that he created was good. Mm -hmm. And when we approach the world in that way, we can seek, we can knock, we can trust our senses, and we can engage in science and really believe that maybe we're discovering truth, that we're mm -hmm. getting closer and closer to understanding, as Einstein called it, the mind of God. Right. But if there is no God, what's left? Right. And it can we trust our reason? Right. Can we trust our eyes? Yeah. But at this point, for Edmund, he, he, for all he knows, that was Aslan as a stone in the courtyard. Yeah. So for all he knows, there is no Aslan. There, Aslan's dead. God is dead. So the world has betrayed him. And in that moment, he, you know, he doesn't even believe in Aslan. He doesn't even believe there's any. Yeah. This is not a moment of, 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 turning, to of turning to Christ. Right. Yeah. This, this is, is not that. Right. This is but it is a recognition right. of the evil. Because he doesn't even have God in his life at that right. moment. It's a moment where the world has betrayed him. Yep. You know. Yep. And he his sees faith, the witch as, his as faith, a betrayer of not right. only himself, but of everything. Right. Exactly. Yeah. When you, when you, you that is a, a critical moment, yeah. seeing evil for what it is. Right. And you can't really come to God until you've done that. Right. Going back to what I was saying about the atheist or someone who doesn't believe in God, they have to come to that moment where the the world, the universe betrays them. Yes, I agree. And they can't blame it. They they say, I don't believe in God, so I can't blame it on God. So Yeah, if you can't blame it yeah. on God. <laughs> so Which he, is what, of course, you they oftentimes, I find that behind yeah. A lot of well, atheism, yeah, of course, right? I understand. Well, it's I that do, they hate yeah. God so much that they don't believe in it, right? I understand. <laughs> I understand that. That's what I think too. But at that moment, 
when you can't say that this is God's fault because, you know, inside of yourself, you say, there's no God, so I can't blame this on God. You see this terrible thing happening and it, it it's stone for for all through the ages. The moss grows over and it ah, crumbles away. Yeah. Right. Do you know what I mean? And right. It's like, what, what then? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I guess you either oh. accept that and then you turn almost to an Eastern an Eastern philosophy right, where true. the only good is the cessation of consciousness, right? right? The, the finding of nirvana, which is yeah. absolute emptiness. <laughs> but there yeah. is, there is an element and you just spurred this thought in me Yeah, that when we find at the basis of everything mm -hmm. value, and even at this point, because he sees it as a negative value, mm -hmm. you may not believe in God, but suddenly you're struck with the reality of evil. Mm -hmm. You know that value is real, right? And that's enough to turn you around, right? And if value, if if evil is real, mm -hmm. then what it's parasiting on must also have some sort of reality. Mm -hmm. um, so it can it can be what we talked about as a pointer mm -hmm. in um, the evident evidence in faith and exactly. elsewhere in the Christian atheist. Exactly. Yeah, that's interesting. That is good. I hadn't thought about those things. Some, some so, new insight. Okay, so now. We're at the end of that chapter, and there's the signs of spring, power of winter is failing, right. as we said, and we get to chapter 12, and this is this is probably the final part that we're going to discuss. We're not going to go any further than chapter 12. Yeah, we'll call but it a this day is, after this. Yeah, this is Peter's first battle, because the next part in the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is big. <laughs> it's a very big part. Yeah. 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 And we're going to need to spend a significant amount of time right. on it. So Peter's first battle. Um, right. Well, actually, we'll just we'll, we'll take the last bit of of chapter twelve just okay. to sort of transition us. Okay. This is no thaw," said the dwarf suddenly stopping. Chapter eleven. Of chapter eleven, yeah. right? This is no thaw," said the dwarf suddenly stopping. This is spring. What are we to do? Your winter has been destroyed. I tell you, this is Aslan's doing. If either of you mentions that name again, said the witch, he shall instantly be killed. So the witch is now recognizing her own mm -hmm. peril. Mm -hmm. And of course, that just intensifies her hatred um, because she lives constantly in fear. Right. Plato, very clearly in The Republic, talks about the misery in which the tyrant lives. Mm -hmm. And that's very clear in Jadis. She is a tortured soul. Right, right. And she's torturing herself. Yeah. Which is another thing that, that Lewis makes the point of. He means um, sort of like the the backstories of all the evil the evil characters in Disney. Yes. Yes. <laughs> oh my gosh. This is one of the things that absolutely drives me insane in our modern world. <laughs> the idea that all of the evil characters that we've experienced through through our childhood. Our, our childhood were just misunderstood good people. <laughs> oh. Well, anyway, don't get it. Don't oh. get you started on yeah, that. Yeah, let's not go there. <laughs> okay. So we have um, the children get to the stone table first. The witch sends her wolves racing towards them. Um, they meet Aslan. Right. The, the kids meet Aslan. Mm -hmm. We probably should kind of hurry through this part because. Right. We're getting to We're the getting end of well. our time. <laughs> and Peter takes up responsibility. Right. And Peter goes forward. Peter goes forward and says, we have come, Aslan. And this, of course, is our first meeting with Aslan, too, if, if we're reading in 
publication order. Right. Welcome, Peter, son of Adam, said Aslan. Welcome, Susan and Lucy, daughters of Eve. Welcome, he-beaver and she-beaver. His voice was deep and rich and somehow took the fidgets out of them. But where is the fourth? Asked and a lot of time when raising kids. <laughs> you don't need to know, hear the information. You know already what they did. You just want to hear it from them. Yes. <laughs> and, you... and for those of you who don't, who don't know, Jenny raised seven kids. So <laughs> she's had lots of experience. You can find out their character <laughs> and how they respond to those questions. Those questions, right. <laughs> then you know what you have to work on in the future. <laughs> <laughs> That's, then you can tell which of your children are truthful, which are not. <laughs> right, and then you know what, how to, how to, what the goal is for each one of them. <laughs> <laughs> he has tried to betray them and joined the White Witch, oh, Aslan, said Mr. Beaver. And then something made Peter say, That was partly my fault, Aslan. I was angry with him. And I think that helped him to go wrong. So again, again we see the children taking, taking responsibility right, right. instead of pushing it off. And was that something common in Lewis's time? Children taking responsibility, do you think? Uh, I think good children, just mm -hmm. like in any time. And Aslan said nothing, either to excuse Peter or to blame him, but merely stood looking at him with his great unchanging eyes. Please, Aslan, said Lucy, can <laughs> anything be done to save Edmund? I'm sorry, I was thinking about all the times. It just like flashed through my mind all the times through the Old Testament and even up through the uh, Gospels where people question, you know, Job, Habakkuk, all of them questioning God mm -hmm. and he never gives them an answer. <laughs> and Jesus and did even the Jesus, same exactly, thing. Exactly, he does the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like the answers that Jesus gave were always meta answers. Mm -hmm. It's like he stands above all of the questions are being, and he addresses what really needs to be addressed right. as opposed to the questions. And that's right. something I try to do in philosophy. I always mm -hmm. try to push back the disagreements mm -hmm. to the more fundamental issues right. underlying right. them. Right. All shall be done, said Aslan, but it may be harder than you think. They have no idea what Edmund's treachery will cost mm -hmm. Aslan. Exactly. So at this point, um, Aslan is pulling Peter aside to talk to him. Right. Then they hear Susan's horn. It is a wolf that has Susan in a tree, mm -hmm. snapping at her. Peter did not feel very brave. Indeed, he felt he was going to be sick. sick. <laughs> and the notion of bravery here mm -hmm. is very important. Yes. But that made no difference to what he had to do. Bravery is not a matter of how you feel. Bravery is a matter of how you act right. in the moment. Exactly. He rushed straight up to the monster and aimed a slash of his sword at its side. That stroke never reached the wolf. Quick as lightning, it turned round, its eyes flaming and its mouth wide open in a howl of anger. Mm -hmm. If it had not been so angry that it simply had to howl, it would have got him by the throat at once. Mm -hmm. And that mm -hmm. is one of the weaknesses of evil. Yeah. Because evil always has to self-justify. Right. It always have to, has to proclaim its its own mm -hmm. before it acts. Always has to monologue. It always has to monologue, yes. <laughs> and, and actually, that's kind of interesting because we're reading Paradise Lost. Right. And Satan has a lot to say <laughs> in Paradise Lost. Because uh, a lot of John monologuing. Milton. Yeah. He does a lot of monologues. Then came a horrible, confused moment, like something in a nightmare. He was tugging and pulling, and the wolf seemed neither alive nor dead, and its bared teeth knocked against his forehead, and everything was blood and heat and hair. 
A moment later he found that the monster lay dead, and he had drawn his sword out of it. Quick, quick, shouted the voice of Aslan. Centaurs, eagles, I see another wolf in the thickets. There, behind you. He has just darted away. After him, all of you. He will be going to his mistress. Now is your chance to find the witch and rescue the fourth son of Adam. Peter, still out of breath, turned and saw Aslan close at hand. This is another, this was another one of those moments that, that from the first time I read it in this mm -hmm. book, stuck with me as a theme throughout my right. life. You have forgotten to clean your sword, said Aslan. It was true. Peter blushed when he looked at the bright blade and saw it all smeared with the wolf's hair and blood. He stooped down and wiped it quite clean on the grass and then wiped it quite dry on his coat. Hand it to me and kneel, son of Adam, said Aslan. And when Peter had done so, he struck him with the flat of the blade and said, Rise up, Sir Peter Wolfsbane. And whatever happens, Never forget to wipe your sword. Mm -hmm. You are no longer a child. You are mm -hmm. responsible. You are a man. You must act as a man. Take care of your tools. Take care of your tools. Mm -hmm. It was one of the great pieces of advice that my father gave to me, who lived by his tools. Mm -hmm. He was a carpenter all his life. And um, taking care of your tools was one of the, the basic rules of life. and. Even even as Christians, that's the whole idea of spiritual discipline. Mm -hmm. You you need to take care of everything it is in your life, your family, your job. You have to be careful. That, that reminds me of like with Tiny and all of the the differences in attitudes mm -hmm. and and Scoop as well. Yeah. The attitudes that people have towards working these right. days. Right. It is a travesty. We <laughs> cannot survive as a society in this way. If it, you know, if it continues. Yeah, if it continues. Mm -hmm. Kids, they call into work all the time just because they didn't feel like coming into work. They Kind of making their own hours. You make your own hours up. And Rebecca, Becky, too. Yeah, Rebecca. Yeah. She's a business owner. Right. She owns a business and, and they she, can't find good help. Right. It's like impossible. Right. And they raise the wages over and over again yeah. because people are expecting these huge wages. Right. I think she said they tripled and, their wages. And yet they're doing less work than right. they've ever done. And they're certainly not responsible about the work that they actually right. do. Exactly. Nobody takes pride mm -hmm. in work anymore. Mm -hmm. And I can't help see that mirrored in the, in the yeah. sword here. Exactly. Taking care of your sword. Okay, so my love. I think that's another. Shall we call it a wrap? I think so. Okay. I think it's good because we're at a good spot. Well, I and... love doing no compromise with oh, you. Oh, Johnny, I love doing it with you too. So we'll see you next week and we'll try to finish The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe next week. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass, and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview and be a Christian.